I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I will be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? We got legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast, Thursday, July the 20th. Time for another show. No Steve Palazzolo again. He'll be back on Monday, back in the studio, I believe, as well. So to get us between then and now, we've got the great Brad Spielberger on. And it's QB annual time, Brad. The, uh, the great work from the data team, the great work from Charles Miller on graphics, from Ben Lindsay pulling all this together. The QB annual is out a different time of year than in previous, but... Same old, uh, same old QB annual, better and bigger than ever. Better and bigger than ever. I don't know if you worked on it, so I don't want to speak for both of us, but I, you know, I obviously contributed absolutely nothing, and I think it's one of the best ones he's ever done. I can't recommend it enough. I think the graphics and how they lay everything out is cleaner, a bit more concise than it's ever been. Um, people should go check it out for sure. No, almost certainly not a coincidence that I didn't contribute to this one, and it's the biggest and better and, and best we've ever done. So, um, yeah, go and check it out. If you've got a PFF Plus subscription, you will find the QB Annual available to download right now. And on this show, we're going to run through some of the, the most interesting nuggets and data points and trends from that QB Annual and, and dig out some of the, the most fascinating things that we found from it. Um, but before that, just enough time to tell you about the great people at Western and Southern who sponsor this podcast and make all of this possible. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow, Western and Southern's playbook for life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com forward slash PFF. westernsouthern.com forward slash PFF. The great people at Western Southern power the studio with a plaque on the wall. We've got a helmet up here as well. Thank you so much to them. Um, all right, this mostly is pulled from an article by Ben Lindsay, who you know did a lot of the heavy lifting for the, uh, the QB annual. It's up there on pff.com uh, right now. And we're going to kind of work through this article and look at some of the most interesting data points in it. The first one was one that, that jumped out to me as well when I was scanning the, uh, the QB annual when it first came out, was uh, effectively the data point here is um, the yards per attempt on zero graded throws. So essentially, in theory, the throws that we deem expected by quarterback, you know, whether it's screens, all those kinds of things, routine quarterback throws, uh, they're not created equal, you know, because those plays can generate uh, a small amount of yardage, a big amount of yardage, have incredible success or not. And when you start looking at it over a big sample size of numbers, you get to see the schemes, the offenses that do have a lot more success than others. And it's not going to shock anybody that number one in this list is uh, from the 49ers. And number two in this list is from the 49ers, Jimmy Garoppolo and Brock Purdy. Seven yards per attempt and 6.6, which is more than half a yard per attempt, higher than any other quarterback in the NFL. Both of them belong to the 49ers and Kyle Shanahan. This is a data point that shows Kyle Shanahan's cheat code of an offense at work. Yeah, I mean, Garoppolo has been near the top of the league in yards per attempt the last several years. I, I think it's always been a data point that gets thrown out there as to, you know, oh, it's not just Kyle Shanahan. You still have to be able to operate in this offense. And, you know, uh, Nick Mullins and C.J. Beathard and some guys hadn't quite got there, but Brock Purdy was top five in yards per attempt from week 13 through the playoffs. Um, you know, and, and again, the, the, you have to have a certain level of competency. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, pre-snap knowing where you're going with the football, which isn't, you know, the easiest thing in the world, but a great data point to illustrate, you know, the genius of Kyle Shanahan. Yeah, it, it's crazy because we've we've made this point repeatedly, and you're right. Usually it's yards per attempt as a raw number that gets thrown out there to illustrate just how successful this offense is. But this, I think, is one that, that goes a layer deeper or a step deeper than that and tries to point out that, look, it's not just executing this offense and, and that's what, what you need to do from a quarterback point of view. It's on the throw specifically 
where we're qualitatively saying that the quarterback effectively isn't really doing much, right? He is delivering an expected throw. Now, he still needs to make the read, identify the right guy, etc. But when he's making an expected throw, this offense is generating significantly more production than any other offense in the NFL. Like the, the worst guy of the two, Brock Purdy, is still gaining more than half a yard more than any other quarterback. And Jimmy Garoppolo was gaining more than a full yard more than any other quarterback. And that's, you know, number three on the list is Jared Goff, who Ben Johnson was the guy we were saying is maybe the best offensive coordinator in the NFL right now. I guess that's if you don't include Kyle Shanahan, who technically is also the offense coordinator for the 49ers. But, like, this is showing that Kyle Shanahan is still the king in that area. I think the interesting thing, too, is I think the importance here is only going to continue to grow. We'll get more into, you know, Mahomes in a bit, but... With a lot of teams now that, you know, against these elite quarterbacks, you're not supposed to blitz because they'll dice you up. Realistically, you want to drop eight a lot of the times and do what, you know, the, the Bengals and Lou Anarumo have done to Josh Allen and other players as well. And we saw last year the Chiefs kind of counter to, you know, limited pressure, a ton of guys in coverage. You need to be able to dial up winning plays where your average depth of target is five yards or less. But, but it's on the coach at that point to, you know, dial up yards after the catch, figure things out. Uh, and again, obviously Shanahan's always going to show up well there, but I think across the league, you got to have winning plays, explosive plays where it's not actually coming down to getting a guy open deep. It's creating, you know, blockers and getting guys in space and doing different things because, you know, we're you're seeing more and more coverage players, more and more too high. That is the counter. And we talked yesterday on our injury show, which I would encourage you to listen to if you haven't already. You know, Brock Purdy is maybe the most fascinating guy in the NFL in terms of a guy coming back from injury that we're excited to watch heading into the season. So much, um, so much to sort of factor in when when that whole decision is, is at work. But the big one being he was so successful last year in a relatively small sample size. Like, are they going to give him the kind of room? to prove that he can do that again. Like, if he struggles coming back from this elbow injury, elbow surgery, are they going to give him the room to get through that and get to the other side, or are they going to make that decision of, look, effectively anybody makes this offense work. So until you're 100% healthy or until you show that you can do it again, we're going to go in a different direction and give it to Trey Lance or Sam Darnold or whoever it is because as much as, like, pretty much everybody's patience has worn out with Sam Darnold, I don't think there are many people that, that don't think he's capable of putting up pretty big numbers within this offense. If the 49ers have to turn to Sam Darnold because Brock Purdy's elbow doesn't look right at the start of the year, I don't think it would be a problem. I really don't either. I mean, I actually wrote for an article that I think came out today about some of these camp battles, including the, the, the Niners quarterback. I mean, Darnold, the last, from week 12 to 17, um, actually played some really good football. I think he was also top five in yards per attempt, but um, had, I think, nine turnover worthy, or nine big time throws to one turnover worthy play. Like, was playing very well. If he steps into this offense, I think Kyle Shanahan can make it work for a month or however long he needs to until Brock Purdy's ready to go. The next uh, data point from this article is about the QB sneak, um, which was fascinating because everybody expected, because of the success rate of the double-cheek push, the Eagles, and stacking guys behind the quarterback and having them drive him over the line, that we were going to see the competition committee in the offseason immediately address that and effectively outlaw it of the game. And they didn't. They, they said no. Um, but you look at this chart, and it shows... The Eagles by far led the league in terms of attempts. 31 of these um, QB sneak attempts, 28 of which were successful, a 90% conversion rate, which isn't the highest on this list, but is the, high, is the most impressive, I think, when you factor in just the volume of attempts that they had. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they, the competition committee didn't outlaw that, but I have to say I like it. I like double-cheek push. I don't have a problem with the fact that it's currently unstoppable. I, I don't think that's an issue. Like, in this league where everybody is crying out for more points and more offense, this is more points and more offense. Why are we complaining? And that, I think, is exactly why. I think you just answered your own question as to why the competition <laughs> committee let it stand. It, yeah, it's leading to offense, or if it doesn't and the team does not convert, you're probably getting good field position for the other team. So in some way or another, it's probably leading to more points scored. But yeah, I think teams are going to get creative with it as well, d d dial different things up. You don't have to, you know, you could, you could 
wildcat double cheek push and do all sorts of different things um, if you don't want to put your quarterback at risk. But yeah, this play is here to stay. And, and I agree with the takeaway of like we might see, you know, a record number of QB sneaks. I don't see why we wouldn't. It, it's a smart football player right now. And we saw some of that counter being done last season as well. Like the Eagles had a couple of plays here or there where they they sort of they showed double cheek push and then ran something around the perimeter, you know, ran something wide and took advantage of the fact that everybody is now trying to stack that box and, and really shut this down. I also think it's fascinating that Every time this happens, I think it's really interesting where one side of the ball, whether it's offense or defense, and obviously lately it's been more offense than defense, come up with something that is incredibly overpowered, you know, incredibly potent, like a, like a video game where something is just artificially way too powerful. And then eventually, you know, the, the developers or whatever come around and nerf that and it, it comes back down to earth. In the NFL, it's the other side of the ball needs to figure out how to do that. Like, right now, double-cheek push is basically unstoppable. So every defensive coordinator in football is spending this offseason trying to work out how in God's name we're going to stop that. And they've been doing that already for a while. Like, they've been talking to rugby experts trying to figure out how you're supposed to stop this short yardage push that is currently carving up the NFL. So to me, that's a good thing. I like that. I like seeing... One side being put under an incredible amount of pressure because currently something is basically unstoppable. Now figure out how to how to neutralize it. Yeah, and, and I think it probably comes back to you know personnel and and putting base personnel or even you know heavier more more loaded. And then like you talked about, then of course offenses will you know counter out of it, play action out of it, and, and maybe have a pop play and have a guy, you know, uncovered downfield because there aren't a lot of DBs on the field. Like, it's going to it's gonna be a cat and mouse game for a while, I think. And it potentially redresses some of the, um, you know, some of the position value stuff that has become a big uh, topic of conversation with running backs, but obviously nose tackles and any, any yeah. traditional old-school base type of formation on either side of the ball – has been diminished over the last 10, 15 years. But, like, if if you suddenly have to stop the combined might of a quarterback and a running back or whoever it is, a 350-pound immovable nose tackle becomes quite a lot more valuable than he was before you had to try and contend with that. And I think, I guess, opposite him, too, centers maybe get a little bit more respect. I think a lot, a huge part of it, obviously, you know, we're talking Eagles, is I imagine Kelsey with Lane Johnson, they're you know infamous for pass protection snaps, but also I'm sure they are so down to the millisecond on as soon as I snap it, everyone get, you know, get the push going. Um, but yeah, I mean, centers are, are also a very underpaid position and, and they're a huge, huge part uh, of this particular play, no question about it. Before we get onto the next data point from this article, this season DraftKings has launched the largest best ball tournament in DraftKings history. Right now, you can enter the DraftKings best ball tournament for a shot at over $10 million in guaranteed cash prizes. Make your entry into the draft today. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the NFL season without having to worry about managing your roster, waiver wires, and more. To start playing best ball, download the DraftKings app, use code PFF. Enter DraftKings Best Ball Millionaire Contest and snake draft your team for the season. Each week, you'll automatically rack up points from all your top scorers. No ads, drops, trades, or I should have played them instead. Teams with the most points by the end of the season will have a shot to take home the $1 million top prize. So what are you waiting for? Head to the DraftKings app and sign up with code PFF and start playing best ball today. Join the DraftKings $10 million best ball tournament only on DraftKings with code PFF. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. One per customer. Opt-in required with $10 entry fee. Bonus issued is 10 DraftKings dollars. Age and eligibility restrictions apply. Void or prohibited. See DraftKings.com slash promotions for details. Ends August 9th, 2023. Um, so one of the things that's not really new with the QB annual this year, but there's certainly more of them, is um, kind of pitting combining data points to come up with a, a matrix of quarterbacks throughout the NFL. And there's a few of these put out there in, in these quadrant charts that are really fascinating. This one is quarterback pressures allowed versus the pressure to sack rate. Um, and it's sort of giving you an indication of how much quarterbacks are responsible for their pressure, but also how badly that pressure affects them once it arrives. And when you look at this particular graph – it's actually pretty interesting in terms of how many quarterbacks exist in 
you know, like anomalous data points. There's obviously a couple of big clusters, but then there are guys that are way off on their own. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes is typically way off on his own in these types of charts in one way, shape, or form. Um, but Lamar Jackson is way out, not quite on his own, but Jalen Hurts is right there with him. What was your biggest takeaway from this chart? It had to be Mahomes, you know, especially, and you tie it again, back into the fact that he was near the bottom of the league and averaged up the target and and not necessarily showing up where he did because he was trying to wait for Tyree Kill after three and a half seconds to get open. Like, it's, I think it's almost like NFL blitz level where they found a way, a way to draw in defenders and then distract them from what's going on behind them and someone will eventually get open on a clear out route or even just get open just kind of on a scramble drill running across the field and they've weaponized that like and, and made it a common play and, and and a consistent play as opposed to just you know something that is kind of a flash in the pan i mean he is off in his own world <laughs> on this chart this is if you wanted to make the argument and people did that Mahomes belongs in his own tier, you know, separate from Joe Burrow and Josh Allen and any other quarterback in the NFL. He's so good that he should be ranked as one of one and nobody else actually belongs in that tier. This is, I think, the data point that best supports that argument. Like, other guys make crazy big plays. Other guys can scramble around, turn third downs into first downs. Um, Other guys can match him in terms of the volume of big mistakes that he makes, turnover-worthy type plays. But one of the the great sort of hidden um, data points for quarterbacks is sacks. And not because sacks, you know, we've pushed this narrative for a while, sacks are a quarterback-driven data point to a large degree, not really or not necessarily the offensive line and the protection. Quarterbacks kind of control their own pressure. And the rate at which quarterbacks are sacked can be largely determined by the quarterback. And each one of those is a fairly significant negative play, not at the same degree as a turnover, but, you know, getting there. Mahomes does not take sacks, does not take them. And generally across the board, now the Chiefs have done a good job of rebuilding that offensive line, but he's almost always at the very best end of the percentage of pressure that gets to him that is turned into sacks. And this chart... I think illustrates that because he actually invites more pressure than most quarterbacks, right? That way that he plays the game of, you know, dropping out of the bottom of pockets, of scrambling around, of all those things that Mahomes does, it makes him, you know, one of the highest quarterbacks in terms of contributing to his own pressure. And yet this year he was the the lowest quarterback in the entire NFL in terms of the percentage of that pressure that led to sacks. That is a superhuman quarterback trait. It really is, yeah. And like we talked about with the Q- QB sneaks, I think the thing when you're ranking quarterbacks or talking about you know tiers, whatever, I do think he's in his own tier, um, is like wait for a team to counter, right? Like I'm not taking anything away from what Jalen Hurts just did or insert quarterback here that just had a great season, but defenses are going to go back to the drawing board. They're going to say, we need to figure this guy out. We need to play him differently. Can you then continue to respond to that over and over and over again and I mean, Mahomes has probably seen five different defenses, yeah. you know, or different philosophies in five different years, and, and just continues to defy, you know, everything. Well, this is this is why, like, he's reached, he's been in that echelon for a while. Of there's no game plan, there isn't one. Like, there is not a correct game plan to beat Mahomes because he wins whatever you do. If you get aggressive with the blitz, he'll carve you up. If you sit back and let him, you know, dice you up that way, he'll do that you can't really get pressure on him because he invites it and then he beats you once you get the pressure. Like, there's no answer. At least with you know, with a lot of players, even if you can't execute it, you know what the game plan should be. You know, you understand this is what we need to be really good at this week, otherwise we're not going to win. But you know what you're doing. With Mahomes, you don't even know what the answer to that question is. Like, right, blank sheet of paper, how do we beat Mahomes? The, like, nobody has a clue. Like, I don't have a good answer to that, let alone then spend a week practicing and trying to execute that game plan. I don't even know what it should be. Like, Peyton Manning was always at the, at the right end of this metric in terms of the, the percentage of pressure that led to sacks. Um, and that makes sense when you think intuitively about how Manning played the game. You know, the second he felt pressure, he was always able to hit, it, hit his outlet, his check down, you know, just turn, immediately fire it to the running back in the flat, whatever. But the big difference between the two is Mahomes is 
sort of inviting that pressure to get people out of position and then not just getting the ball away, like not just mitigating the pressure and making it not a problem, but actively targeting the pressure and creating big plays off the back of it and being you know, more productive than a guy like Peyton Manning in those situations because he's, he's creating it as a, as a feature, not a bug. Yeah, no, like you'll see a, a linebacker who maybe has is responsible for a, a leaking tight end or running back, whatever. He'll finally say, all right, I'm going to go rush Mahomes, and then he just drops it in over the top. I mean, I think his touchdown passes on throws behind the line of scrimmage alone last year, I believe would have ranked top 10 in just touchdown passes for any quarterback uh, of, of any style. I mean, he just, like I said, whatever you throw at him, he just has a response. So the next one of these um, quadrant charts that we're looking at is average time to throw against average depth of target, right? So on the one axis, how quickly do you get the ball out of your hands uh, on a regular basis? And then the other axis, how deep downfield are you targeting? And obviously those two things are linked. Generally speaking, the the deeper downfield you're going to be targeting, the longer the ball is going to take to come out. Um, But there are exceptions to that. And again, we see a few quarterbacks in their own little quadrant or their own little uh, anomalous data point, probably the most interesting, two of the most interesting, I think. Number one, Tua, who has a really high average depth of target, almost the highest in the entire NFL, but actually gets the ball out of his hands extremely quickly on average. And then Justin Fields, who has a pretty high average depth of target as well, but holds onto the ball longer than any other quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, the two data point I think is awesome because I think, you know, when McDaniel came in, I think a lot of people assumed, all right, they're going to run a bunch of mesh and and just attack the middle of the field and let their guys run after the catch. And, you know, to a, then you'd see data points like he's our highest graded deep passer or certainly up there in that conversation. And you would watch film and say, well, his arm strength is just not there. So how is he doing this? And it's frankly... I think McDaniel from Alabama, but just in general, identified that anticipatory throws from Tua or like getting like throwing a deep ball pretty much at the top of his drop and just getting it out um, was a great play. And it's something that he's very, very good at. He's accurate. He is on time. He's on schedule. He trusts his guys to win. I think he has good ball placement where, you know, he put it towards the sideline where only Tyreek or Jalen Waddle can get it. Um, yeah, like it, it's hard to argue. I think we people obviously want to nitpick and say, "Oh, we can't do what a Herbert or a Josh Allen, etc., could do, where you, you run around for three seconds and then rifle a deep ball in there." Those plays, you, we see a lot of his turnover-worthy plays. But um, he is a phenomenal, you know, just just getting it out before the receiver even has a step, but trusting that they will. Um, and, and obviously, that shows up phenomenally here. It's another really interesting data point that starts to show you where arm strength is important. I think everybody generally thinks that arm strength is an issue the deeper down the field you get. But I don't think that's ever really been the case. Like, Chad Pennington, I think, would have been in the same kind of area in this kind of chart in his NFL career, right? That guy had an amazing deep ball, but the ball would would be in the air immediately. Like, he would would almost hit, like nine you know go balls from like a three-step drop he would just drop back hit his debt and then just rainbow you know arc this thing deep down the field because it was about placement and accuracy and as long as you get the look you know one-on-one on the outside the safety's not going to be a factor you can drop that ball into a bucket and if you're accurate enough you can connect on you know a 45 yard pass that can turn into something bigger like Tua is showing the same thing that you don't necessarily need that arm strength to have a really high average depth of target, what you need is accuracy and anticipation. Um, and, and it's sort of interesting because his time to throw is basically in the same kind of area as the other 49ers quarterbacks, but the average depth of target is so much higher. Now, what I think is difficult to, to kind of parse out from that is whether that's a product of Tua's anticipation ability or whether that's what happens when you have Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle in the same offense, and all of a sudden your looks start to look dramatically different, like you are targeting those deeper routes an awful lot more than you are when you're looking at the 49ers receivers, even as good as they are. And it's probably a combination of both of those things. 
it is a combo for sure. I mean, yeah, obviously, you're going to know that if you just put a throw up a go ball to Tyreek or Jalen Waddle, they're probably going to beat their defender. But I, I do think it is something we've seen from Tua for a long time, and I think it's you know sharp coaching by by McDaniel to realize you want to create these shot plays, these explosive plays, but he's not a guy that's great outside of structure, or if if the play does get to a point where it's scramble drill, the interception probability skyrockets with the guy that can't just rifle one in there. But yeah, no, he he is phenomenal at this, and, and I think it's going to continue in this offense, uh, maybe even more so this year, uh, to try to just – it just puts so much stress on the defense as well. I'm sure it opens up a ton of things underneath once you're doing it and hitting on it a couple times in a game. The Justin Fields thing is interesting. Um, any sort of athletic, scrambling type of quarterback is going to be skewed upwards in this table because of that average time to throw you know they're going to drag that in the in what looks like the wrong direction but is essentially being warped by those uh, scramble plays but it's the fact that he ranks so high in average depth of target which I think is interesting as well and I, I, I wonder what that looks like this season when theoretically we're improving his uh, receivers, you know, DJ Moore coming over. We've improved the offensive line. Generally, the offense is going to have more help around Justin Fields than it had last year. Do you want him to dial that back a little bit and become more sort of league average aggression when it comes to average depth of target? Or do you actually want, look, if you're going to be a little bit more um, hit or miss. If you're going to have a little bit less efficiency than some of these uh, really high-end passing quarterbacks right now, do you actually want to offset that with be aggressive so that if you hit one of these plays, you know, if you're only hitting at a 50% rate, and obviously that's like pessimistic, but plucked out of the air, if you're only going to hit one out of every two, if that one goes for 25 yards and is a, a big play, that, that's fine. Like that actually makes sense from an efficiency standpoint. Yeah, I think we need to see a growth in the intermediate passing game. And it's interesting. Uh, he, among starting quarterbacks, had some of the lowest attempts in the entire NFL from, from between 10 and 20 yards downfield, but actually graded extremely well. Um, and his accuracy, which is not a strong so far in the NFL, which we'll get to in a bit, um, was, was very high on, on passes between 10, 20 yards downfield. But I think he just didn't have a lot of faith that his receivers were going to get open on intermediate routes. It was either wait for them to, you know, again, kind of scramble drill and then just throw it up deep and hope that one of them comes down with the football um, or you're just hoping, a you know, a, a nine route to begin with is going to work out. And if it doesn't, it's just going to be an incompletion to the sideline. So. I think that's the biggest area for growth, and I think it is like a DJ Moore and a Chase Claypool actually understanding the offense, you know, getting open or him trusting them to win back shoulder stuff or, you know, it's things towards the, the boundary. Um, it, it's a product not just of like him wanting to do it. I think it's also a product of him trusting that the guys he's doing it with are actually capable of winning on those routes. So I do think this, this number will come down a good bit, but I think it has to, frankly, for the offense to look a lot better. The only other name I think that I would highlight from this is Daniel Jones, who was in, who was the furthest extreme version of the quadrant that is um, high average time to throw, holds on to the ball a long time, so he's in the top left of this uh, this chart, and then a reasonably a low average at the target. So is taking a long time with the ball without being aggressive with it. That is potentially concerning in an offense and a team that feel kind of primed to regress a little bit this year, like that I think needs to change if Daniel Jones and the Giants are going to be able to repeat what they did a year ago and, you know, overachieve and win all those games again and make the playoffs and, and all that kind of thing. Jones, I think, needs to sort of become a bigger part of what's mo motivating that offense rather than a passenger, as is currently the case. For sure. And, and look, I'm not going to make excuses for him. He obviously did not have a great receiving core last year by any stretch of the imagination. Right. You know, adding in Darren Waller, Paris Campbell, etc. Get a healthy Wondell Robinson back, get Jalen Hyatt in the fold, like I think could help. But th this is, you know, just another data point that points to just the confusion for me as to why they felt the need to get a multi-year deal done. I really do think, especially now that we're beyond the deadline, not to dive into that conversation, but... If they, if they didn't feel the need to tag one and sign one, do, like let's say Saquon Barkley is not on the team, is Daniel Jones on a franchise? Like, did they really just pay him to not because they needed the franchise tag at their disposal? Yeah. It, you know, it, 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 it comes up more and more every time you look at his various data points from last season. I think that probably is what it was. Um, and I guess potentially wanted the 
the extra money, like the cap space, to be able to potentially get a long-term deal done with somebody, you know, as opposed to having the entire franchise tag for the quarterback sitting there. Um, this next data point is fun. It's a uh, straight out of PFF IQ, Steve's baby. I hadn't realized this before, but um, one of the things we have in PFF IQ, we've, and we've talked about this before in this podcast, we've kind of divided up uh, various traits or, or data points into stable metrics, things that are repeatable year on year and year, consistent and therefore predictable and a, a good thing to focus on when you're looking, about, looking at what a guy is going to do in the future. And then unstable metrics, which generally speaking are not uh, predictable year on year and can be very descriptive, but not necessarily predictive in terms of what's going to happen. So for quarterbacks, we have six stable metrics and they are PFF grade from a clean pocket. And you've heard us focus on this a lot before. Um, there are, they're grade from a, a standard dropback. So you strip out the rollouts, you strip out the scrambles, all that kind of stuff. Um, they're great on first and second down, which is not necessarily what you would think intuitively. They're great without play action because obviously we know that that, can, that essentially artificially inflates uh, performance. They're grades at or beyond the sticks, so targeting beyond the first down markers, and then how often they avoid negative plays as a percentage. What's fascinating about Joe Burrow is he graded in the 97th percentile for all six, not at or above actually the 97th percentile for all six, which I don't think I've ever seen before. That's insane. Yeah. And it does, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. That it does check out where, you know, when you, when you, people are talking rankings, but also just working through the players of why you like a guy and there are detractors. So, you know, for example, an unstable metric would be passing when pressured uh, on my clean pocket. And Josh Allen has led the led grading in that scenario two years in a row, which is pretty surprising because it's just a very, very unstable thing. But I think that is where sometimes you have the people that say, well, Burrow, like he's kind of milk toast. He doesn't have the best arm strength. He's not the best athlete. All these things, all true, you know. But just like a Tom Brady or whoever, if you're just consistently good at the things you have the most control over, the things that are going to year over year have a stronger correlation. That's how you can, you know, be be Joe Burrow. Yeah, it's also worth pointing out that he graded really well in some of the unstable ones. Like his grade under pressure last year was in the 88th percentile. That's pretty insane. Um, his grade on third and fourth down was the 95th percentile. That's pretty nuts. Um, the percentage of positively graded plays, the flip side of that negative thing, 82nd percentile. The only one that he was bad at uh, was his grade with play action, unusually, whereas most quarterbacks you know, take advantage of that kind of cheat code uh, feature of an offense and tend to grade better. Joe, uh, Joe Burrows was the 24th percentile. That was the one area where he did have uh, a relative weakness. Yeah, no, I mean, that's it, actually pretty interesting on the on the under pressure stuff because I think that's how you take that next step for him. He was, you know, really struggled with the pressure to sack rate and inviting pressure and all right. those things his first couple of years. So if that's coming down, that's just yeah, that was probably his biggest weakness in his game, frankly. You know, before last season. Um, one other element that's a, a Justin Fields uh, connection here is just sort of highlighting effectively the pathway that Justin Fields has taken so far in the NFL and then comparing that to what C.J. Stroud is going to look like. So um, one of the things I think that's sort of getting lost a little bit at the moment was just how insanely accurate Justin Fields was in college, right? We expected him to be a high-level NFL passer, which he might be. He just hasn't been yet. Um, and yet now we're sort of thinking of him almost in the opposite terms as a guy with incredible athleticism but can't really pass the ball yet. But his accurate uh, pass percentage, so accurate ball location data, um, in his final season in college, 72.4%. Number one, that's an insanely high number. Number two, it was number one in the entire FBS that season. And then his accurate pass percentage in his first two NFL seasons has been just 51.1%. So almost that exact coin flip I mentioned earlier, which is 31st in the NFL. Now, C.J. Stroud, his accurate pass percentage that final season, 68%, second in the FBS. What is he going to do in his first season in the NFL? One of the big differences, I think, is that connection with Bobby Slowick and Houston and that Shanahan tree type of offense. But this is a big question for Stroud. 
certainly is. And obviously, he had the Georgia game, which was such an outlier performance for him. But he's not the athlete that Justin Fields is. He's not going to be able to scramble for a thousand yards and have that make up the difference. So, but I, one thing I want to dive into, I wish I had time before, but the immediate thought I had was looking at accuracy d- broken down by our, our route grading metrics where you say okay what are the accurate pass rate when it when receivers are defined as open or having one step versus how accurate are they when they're you know when it's it's closing or covered or whatever um and, and i would imagine you know the spread offense at ohio state with a bunch of you know first round picks on it like fields is remarkably accurate but it's also he was throwing you know deep balls to chris Olave with 10 yards of separation so I'm not saying anyone can do that. I'm not saying it's easy to do, but NFL open is just so much different than college open and, and throwing a player open as opposed to throwing to an open player and all those things is, I still think where there is the lack of confidence. And again, I think part of that also is just, you know, maybe he shouldn't have had a lot of faith in his receivers getting open uh, <laughs> last season, but you know, that that excuse no longer exists. They have a pretty solid group now uh, for 2023. But, but that was my biggest takeaway is like, you know, where are you accurate or when are you accurate? Um, again, hard to do both things. Not saying it's a, it's a bad data point, but my guess is he's probably 80% accurate when, the, when his receivers have a step and then maybe struggled a little bit more when they didn't. And I think that could be an interesting splice that we do in the future as well. Yeah, like I, I've been asked quite a few times actually in the last week or so, like um, just generally about the state of analytics, you know, where the league is, how far ahead uh, relative to previously, all this kind of stuff. And I, I kind of circle back to this idea that um, football is never going to, like, solve the game the way that baseball potentially has. Like, I don't know enough about baseball to articulate this necessarily 100% accurately, but generally speaking, the static nature of the game, it was reasonably simple to get everybody, once analytics was at work, Here's what we need to do. Here's what we're targeting. This is how to solve the game, like to, to win the game. Um, and then once everyone kind of got on the same page, now it's just equalized effectively. You're never going to get that in football because it's just it's too complicated. There's too many moving pieces. There's too much interdependency. So the genius in, in, in all of it is always going to be interpretation and figuring out how much to weigh one thing versus another thing. And, you know, we can just ever we can slice this thing ever and ever finer and just figuring out which slices to focus on and that's part of what that iq and the stable unstable metric stuff was but we're only going to come across more of these things and you know more elements and figuring out how much weight you should be putting in each one of these things particularly when it comes to draft is always going to be the most difficult thing and it's why you're always going to need like analytics is never just going to spit out the answer, right? You're not just going to be able to take all the data, feed it into the computer, hit enter, and like like the model, and it just give you the name, right? This is the guy to pick, the end. No more debate, no more questions, that's it. There's always going to be this layer of interpretation and waiting and figuring out how much to to place value on each individual data point. Also think that it's twofold because what happens then also is okay so a there's the component of it's so hard to isolate variables and football is such a you know interconnected sport but then secondly as we learn and go through these things and have more data points and splice out different splits then sample sizes become an issue right and so we just need more data but as we get more and more data and as more and more time goes on i think you'll have more robust you know subcategories or sub splices of something we look at where then you could say okay this this might be meaningful because it's not that oh these 50 snap you know uh, subsection of a category is giving us that this data point a then can be built up but right now if you go to all right, accuracy rate, and then you're looking at receiver separate. You know, it's like, sure, maybe there's something there, but it's hard to draw a definitive conclusion. So I agree with you. It's always going to be evolving, but also always going to be like unleashing new avenues as we get more and more evidence or data or whatever you want to call it. Um, I didn't mean to besmirch the good name of the model. Obviously, once the model hits like two terabytes <laughs> as a, a spreadsheet file, it'll definitely be able to just spit you out the answer. It might take a week and a half or you know, reach the point where you've drafted already <laughs> before it can give you that name, but it'll get there. Um, if you haven't heard already, Brad, it's Smooth Sack Summer. 
Whether you're playing in the sun, make sure you're escaped from pubes to bum. That's right, this summer, keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners everything they need to stay fresh. Dive headfirst into Smooth Sack Summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code PFF. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 has everything you need to prepare that summer bot. They've built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer grooming. Their lawnmower 4.0 features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. The lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch, can engage a travel lock, and gives you the ability to turn off the 4,000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. Did I mention this trimmer's waterproof too? Beach, lake, or shower, this razor will devour even the strongest pubes. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. It's smooth sack summer, boys. Get on board or get left behind. Very almost Ron Burgundy and Red Out call to action again right there. Almost did it. By the way, my new favorite part of this uh, Manscaped ad read, which I, I develop a new favorite section every time I read it, but my new favorite thing is the euphemistic language that is grooming accidents. <laughs> grooming accidents is such a pleasant way of describing what that actually was before Manscaped rolled up with their, uh, their proprietary lawnmower 4.0. That doesn't sound like a pleasant thing to have happened. Not in, not in any way, shape, or form. No. All right. That's enough of Manscaped. Go, go get their performance package 4.0. Manscaped.com, PFF. They do some awesome stuff. Not just below the waist grooming, but all forms of grooming. Um, the beard trimmer. Do you get a beard trimmer, Brian? That, that goatee? I, yeah. That's there the one I use. There yeah. you go. Um, Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence got the ball out in rhythm uh, better in his first season in Doug Peterson's offense. So just another data point to illustrate that Doug Peterson came in and fixed the disaster that was the Urban Meyer mess the year before. Yeah, this is a great shout because I thought the interesting thing for Lawrence, so we've probably said this before on the show, from week nine on, he was our second highest graded quarterback. Yeah. But I thought that was great about that as well was his, his average uh, time to throw was also second fastest in the NFL behind Tom Brady over that stretch. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily that he was making plays happen out of structure or you know, getting lucky or that it was a, you know, I think it, it combats the sample size a little bit. Cause you're also just saying, yeah, he's processing quicker and just making quicker decisions. Um, and I think it's why I'm, I, I was kind of not bearish on him, but you know, people were saying he was a top 10 quarterback. I feel like a month into the season. And I said, yeah, the talent's there, but I'm not sure yet. And then just goes on an absolute tear, but also I think a repeatable tear and a, um, you know, something you can replicate because if you're getting the ball out that quickly, you're protecting your offensive line, which, you know, will be worse this year and has suspensions and injuries, et cetera. Um, and, but, you know, you add in more receivers and add in that he is, I think, really pre-snapped now with Doug Peterson, having an understanding of where he wants to go with the football, you know, and that it mitigates a lot of the issues is what I'm trying to say and why I think that I'm, you know, very, very bullish on them this year, uh, you know, despite some of the issues up front. And I think Steve has made this point a lot before, really all the way along with Trevor Lawrence, dating back to his college career, that like Trevor Lawrence looks at his best when he's in rhythm and getting the ball out quickly. Now, I think a lot of quarterbacks that's true for, but when I, when I say that, or when Steve was making that point, the point is even relative to other quarterbacks, like Trevor Lawrence's super skill, when Trevor Lawrence looks like the best prospect to come along since X, it's in those situations. It's when he's in rhythm, dropping back, hitting his hitting his mark, and just putting the ball out there and firing it to his target in a way, you know, above and beyond almost any other quarterback in the NFL. If you had questions about him, it was in the other stuff. But if he can shift the balance in his dropbacks towards that in rhythm stuff, that's only good for him and for the Jags. And I think what happens there too is that he still is the athlete that can that can throw off platform, that can scramble and pick up a first down for you. So yeah, it's like getting better and better at the bread and butter is what really matters. But we're not saying he's not capable of doing those things. He certainly is. Uh, you just don't want it to be you know like the the focal point of your offense by any stretch of the imagination. And, and yeah, I think 
the better you are at that, the easier it is to occasionally take off or occasionally, you know, you know, do a scramble drill and figure things out. But again, what what is replicable is what he's doing. So I, I think, yeah, the, the sky is, is certainly the limit there down in Jacksonville. Just a few more data points to get through before we're out. Um, one of them, I think we, we noticed kind of during the season, but it's still a fascinating thing to point out that. Seattle, in transitioning from Russell Wilson to Geno Smith, somehow went from having the best deep ball passer at quarterback in the NFL to having the best deep ball passer at quarterback in the NFL. Geno picked up exactly where Russell Wilson left off, despite, theoretically, a dramatically different offense. Yeah, this is why this is one of the data points why I'm still super high in Seattle. Like I, I almost tried to poke holes in, you know, they can't replicate last year. It's San Francisco's division, etc. But first, you look at just like their Pythagorean win total was right in line with what they did. But then second, when you're trying to poke holes in Geno, and some people say, oh, he he fell off the second half of the season. I think he kind of just, you know, maybe didn't have as good of games. But you go to the way he was winning. So not only was he the best deep ball passer in the NFL. That's with two rookie starting tackles, you know, who right. who had issues in pass pro, you know, at times. They weren't bad. They weren't liabilities. But just imagine how much better it can be. And then I think also why I love the addition of Jackson Smith and Jigba. This is all in there. But but we're certainly, you know, thoughts that come to mind as well is you're going to have to respect DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, two guys that also were injured for a bunch of last season. And Geno still did this. Um, but now if you do, if, you, if you're sinking coverage, I mean, Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to absolutely eat up the middle of the field um you know if you do respect those guys a little bit too much and so will you know will disley and noah fant etc they, they have counters and answers i think to a lot of you know the adjustments that might be heading their way now that gino has you know more respect from defenses around the nfl i'd be willing to bet by the way that that's the first time the word pythagorean has ever been used in this podcast so good work <laughs> for that one um the, the next two data points, again, these are not necessarily surprising ones. These are ones that we should have known, but they, they put some uh, meat on the bone for these narratives that exist. Justin Herbert and getting locked into these throws, these underneath throws in that offense. Like, it's showing the target map and the heat map of where Justin Herbert was, being, was locking into last season and trying to kind of articulate some of the dynamics of what was a play there which, of course, is the biggest question mark for them going forward with the addition of Kellen Moore and how much that can change in this new offense. I think the Kellen Moore addition is going to be massive in this regard. And, I mean, I think, obviously, it's individual to individual, but Dak Prescott historically has been one of our better-graded passers, uh, you know, outside of his first read and, and going through progressions and all those things. Like, that's... I think it's important to point out that it's not just Joe Lombardi, that there is some Herbert control here as well. Um, but this season, I mean, there's there's no excuse, right? He has plenty of weapons. The offensive line with a healthy Rashawn Slater should be pretty solid. Like, they need to be attacking the downfield using his arm strength, which is up there with anyone in the NFL. Um, and I think they will. I think Kellen Moore is going to unlock a lot of this offense. And, and, you know, you have a field stretcher, Mike Williams. Quentin Johnson can play that role as well, needs to work on the drops and whatnot. But... But yeah, this this map needs to look completely different for Trevor uh, for Justin Herbert next year. Yeah, I mean the key thing in the article, there are two different heat maps. There's one that is Justin Fields' targets, and then the other one is the routes that the Chargers' offense ran. And the two maps don't match up, right? So something is happening between the the routes that are run and Justin Herbert targeting specific areas of the field. Now the article also points out that like this is missing key areas of context. It's not possible to just say the that Herbert's map should look exactly the same as the route map because some of those routes can be deliberately designed to not be targeted, right? They can be clear out routes. They can be, you know, designed to move a safety, not necessarily to actually take a target. So it's not as simple as that, but it is another interesting data point that sort of highlights that Herbert was not being as aggressive as we think he should have been or that the overall feeling is he should have been. And there at least were routes being run that theoretically were deeper and more aggressive and could have been targeted. He just wasn't. So, again, we need to kind of – this is another thing for Kellen Moore and and this whole dynamic to play out of trying to understand how much of that was – the offense and how much that was Justin Herbert being more conservative than he should be to be the optimal best version of Justin Herbert he can be. And I think the, the interesting thing here is he's, you know, second all time in touchdown passes through the first three seasons behind Dan Marino yeah. for the rookie record, obviously. Um, 
and there are drives where they get down to the you know low red zone and he's not th- like they're running the football in like I think he could throw 35 40 touchdowns this year if they actually push the ball down the field because I think you know you're not going to have as many goal line carries I mean Eckler had what 18 touchdowns last year something like that obviously some of those were through the air but um, but yeah, I, I think his stats this year, especially because the defense is still not great and they're going to have a lot of tough games. Like I think his numbers with Kellen Moore, I mean, you know, we've seen with Dak Prescott, you're, you're, you're flirting with 5,000 yards and, and stuff like that. Um, I think he could go pretty nuclear uh, in this offense this year. And then the last data point is a similar dynamic at play. It's trying to highlight um, a potential deficiency in an offensive system or an offensive play caller. The Pittsburgh passing offense last year effectively entirely ignored the middle of the field. Um, The heat map of Pittsburgh's routes with Kenny Pickett behind center leaves this giant dark void in the middle of the field between the hash marks. And as the article points out, it's not just dark blue as, you know, the scale as as a cold area of the heat map. It's as dark as the scale gets. It is the worst possible, uh, the worst possible heat in terms of frequency of targeting that area. I mean, no offense in the NFL, I think, can get away with just ignoring a, a key quadrant of the field the way this offense has. And maybe this is a way of uh, showing, you know, a weakness right now in this Matt Canada offense. I think this is also a great illustration of, and we talked about, you know, combining data points. The, the Steelers have been near the bottom of the NFL in play action rate the last three or four seasons, both before Pickett got there and last year, still very much so near the bottom of the NFL. And I think what this shows is you're never getting linebackers biting and, and, and you know, coming up to play the run, and then you can throw over the top of them because it's not happening because you're not, you know, they're, they're low in pre-snap motion. They, so, you know, you also can identify, you know, what a linebacker's responsibility is on a given play or a safety. Um, but then also, you know, you're, you're not running play action to draw defenders in. So I'm, I'm not shocked that they have not, you know, really performed at all over the middle of the field. You're not getting good looks there. Right. And it, this is not a case, though, of, you know, there are some times where you see a chart like this and the obvious answer is, well, they don't have the personnel for those types of plays. They don't have anybody that can not work <laughs> that area of the field. It's not a thing. I mean, sure, Pittsburgh have guys like George Pickens and now Allen Robinson, who you think of as more outside perimeter threats. But Deontay Johnson can work the inside fine. Pat Fryermuth, you know, a top end receiving talented tight end. They have players that can work the middle of the field over, uh, at the intermediate level. This is not a personnel problem. This is a design or a, a feature of this offense that I don't think is working for them right now and something that needs to shift in year two if we're going to get this giant Kenny Pickett breakout and this George Pickens superstardom approach and the Steelers being the offense that, from a personnel standpoint, it looks like they should be. Yeah, now Fryer was the big one for me, and then I mean you bring in Darnell Washington, so you could have you know a uptick in twelve personnel and two guys that can catch the football uh, over the middle and, and and you know drag some guys with them for a couple yards. So yeah, this this is you know like this is something where you monitor to see like if there's a change here, it's probably because they've opened up the playbook a little bit. They're trusting Kenny Pickett to do more things, um, and and he has more confidence to you know attack the middle of the field. All right, guys, that's going to do it for us this Thursday. It's going to do it for us for the week. Uh, remember to send us in emails, nflpodcast at pff.com. Send us in your uh, questions for Palazzolo for GM, consultant GM. We've had a good bunch of those. Those are always fun. Um, send us in any ideas for a new charity we can raise money for and also what the, uh, the forfeit, the punishment should be. Send us anything you like. You know, we like reading your emails. Um, but that's going to be it for me. That's it for, uh, for Bradley over there. Thanks for showing up for the show, Brad. And we'll talk to you Monday with Steve back in the studio.